Will you please turn in your Bibles to Philippians 4, Philippians chapter 4. We're going to look at the first three verses. So these guys have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back if you need a Bible so that you can follow along. And get their attention. They'll get a Bible to you. And those are marked for you at Philippians chapter 4. You can keep that Bible as our gift to you. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. Philippians 4, and that's the last chapter of this relatively short book in your New Testament. So we are nearing the end of our series through the book of Philippians. Just a few more messages. And then we'll be having a series, our next series during the worship hour will be through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. But in the next few weeks, we'll finish Philippians. There are a number of relatively common sayings that we hear or repeat without realizing that those originated in the Bible. When someone says, I'm at my wit's end, that phrase originates in the book of Psalms, which speaks of those who are in a situation that they cannot reason their way out of, and it says they were at their wit's end. When a child says something profound or embarrassing, we sometimes quote the book of Psalms again, which say, which says, out of the mouth of babes. The rock band, The Birds, recorded in 1965 a number one hit called Turn, 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 which said, to everything, turn, turn, turn. There is a season, turn, 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 and a time for every purpose under heaven. Some of you know that that is from that book, Ecclesiastes, that we'll be considering in a few weeks, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And then there is, pride goes before a fall. The truth shall set you free, and many, many others. In 1858, Abraham Lincoln, then a candidate for the U.S. Senate from Illinois, gave a famous speech regarding slavery in America, and he said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And I've heard many people uh, quote that today, and they attribute it to Abraham Lincoln. But over 1,800 years before Lincoln, Jesus had said, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. That's the King James Version. The New International Version says this in that verse, every household divided against itself will not stand. So that principle is true as it applies to a nation, to a home, and also to a church. The Bible says that the church is God's household. 1 Timothy chapter 3, God's household is the church, the pillar and foundation of the truth. And remember Jesus said, every household divided against itself will not stand. The issue of unity is so important that it's the theme of this letter written to the Christians in a place called Philippi that we call the book of Philippians. And that's why we've called our series through this book together for the gospel. You can see that perhaps underneath, but in small, but that's the title of our series, Together for the Gospel. That first word, together, unified, for the purpose of the gospel. It's the theme of this entire four chapters. Going back to chapter 1 and verse 5, it says that we are partners in the gospel. We saw several weeks ago when we examined that passage that the word partnership 
is from the Greek word koinonia, which is often translated fellowship. So it can be translated fellowship in the in the gospel. And it emphasizes what it is we have in common. Koinonia means common. So, for instance, your New Testament was originally written in Greek, but in a particular type of Greek called Koine Greek, as opposed to classical Greek. Koine Greek was the common language of the day that your New Testament was written in. Now, given that the issue of unity then in God's church is so emphasized in the Bible, and given that disunity and division can destroy a church, how is it that so many churches have fallen victim to dissension and division? It is a sad fact that many churches today are offshoots, splits from other churches due to disunity. There's a city in our area, I won't mention the name of the city so as not to impugn any churches in that city that don't fit what I'm going to say. But in that city in our area, it has numerous Baptist churches and a seemingly abnormal number for its population. There's a reason for that. Many of those churches started as splits from the others because people couldn't get along. I heard of one church that started as a Sunday school class at another church. It grew to a large size, that class did, in its own right. The teacher in the class got hacked off at some decision of the leadership in the church, and the whole class walked out and started their own work. When I tell people that our church split off from another church, (laughs) I'm always careful to explain what I mean. Our church, in fact, is a split, but the right kind of split. It was by design to advance the agenda of Jesus Christ, not our own agenda. This is a church plant, a plant of 15 years ago that was daughtered, birthed out of another church at that time. So why is there so much division amongst God's household? Well, Satan uses discord to harm the work of God. I heard a preacher say, sometimes Satan doesn't want to persecute the church, He wants to join it and then infiltrate it and then harm it. But another reason this discord is so rampant is that we have failed. We have failed to take seriously the warnings that God gives. Now, please understand as I make those comments, every time I make these kinds of comments, as we deal with a particular passage of Scripture, I I sense this kind of collective holding of the breath. What has happened? What's going on? So please understand, we have no dissension or division of which I'm aware, though I always add the pastor is usually the last to know. But prevention is better than cure. And I bring all of that up because the passage we're going to consider today is yet another caution from the Bible regarding disunity in God's household, the church. A house and a household divided against itself cannot stand. I've titled today's message, A House Divided. And that's up at the top of the outline that's inserted in your program. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to get that. We'll be looking at it together. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we look at Philippians 4. Our Father, we thank you for gathering us. Lord, you're the one who has gathered us. Because you're the one who has arranged all the circumstances And created the desire within us or 
made the invitation happen that brought us here. Through all of our circumstances, you are the one who has brought us now together for this time. Lord, our hearts are silent before you. Our eyes are upon your word. We ask you, Lord, to use this time as you've designed it for us to hear from you and for us to yield to what you say in your word for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians 4, and in particular the first three verses, are a call to unity. That call is given in the context of progress in the Christian life. That is, unity is one extremely important aspect of what it means to progress, to persevere in spiritual growth. If we're going to persevere in spiritual growth, there are a number of things that chapter 4 is going to tell us have to happen. But one of those, and the first one listed, is there must be unity and the pursuit of unity. So I say in your outline, Christians are called to persevere in general. Persevere in general. Now, I gave you two blanks there. That was an accident. So you didn't miss anything in general. Verse 1 says, of chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Now, this chapter, that verse begins with the word therefore. That means that what follows in chapter 4 is based on what precedes in chapter 3, and we're going to see before that. And this verse, verse 1, has a single controlling command to stand firm. But the reasons that we should stand firm come before this verse. And that's why it begins with therefore. So stand firm, but stand firm therefore because of what has been said prior to chapter 4. Chapters 1 through 3 have told us why we should stand firm, why we should persevere. Now, those of you who have been here over the last many weeks as we've worked our way through this book of Philippians, you may remember the themes that are found in chapters 1 through 3. In light of those themes, this passage is saying, going back to chapter 1, because the most important matter in our lives is the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you must stand firm. Also from chapter 1, We were told there, whatever happens, even if it includes imprisonment for proclaiming God's truth, God is able to transform those adverse circumstances and he's able to overcome those and turn them into stepping stones for the advance of the gospel. Therefore, you must stand firm in them. At the end of chapter one, because our conduct must be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, therefore, you must stand firm. In chapter 2, because we have the supreme example of the Lord Jesus himself, the example of selfless humility, in that he emptied himself of the glories of heaven in order to die a cruel death on a Roman cross, therefore, you must, we must stand firm. In that same chapter 2, because God is at work in us, giving us the will and the ability to act according to his good purposes, and these desires are inevitable, but they are not automatic, Therefore, you must stand firm. Because of the end, uh, at the end of that chapter 2, there are other faithful fellow workers, people like Timothy and Epaphroditus. We must, shoulder to shoulder, stand firm. And then in chapter 3, because there are those who oppose us, 
from both within the church and outside the church. Those who would turn the gospel of Christ into either legalism or those who would reduce it to license. You must stand firm. Because we are in the process of sanctification, chapter 3, forgetting what is behind, straining forward with every muscle toward being like Christ, that goal requires that we stand firm. As we saw last week at the end of chapter 3, because we are citizens of heaven to which we look, expecting day by day the coming of our King and our Master, we have motivation to stand firm in the meantime. So therefore, based on all we have seen in chapters 1 through 3, this is why we must stand firm. This is why we should persevere. But this first verse of chapter 4 not only points back, but it points forward as well. When the last part of verse 1 says, stand firm in the Lord in this way, The phrase in this way is one that points forward. It's saying in this way, and I'm going to tell you what that way is. So stand firm. The reason you should stand firm is all the stuff I've written. But now here's how you should stand firm in this way. In fact, the word that's translated in this way is sometimes translated thus or like this. For example, the justly famous John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I've highlighted the word so there because it's a translation of the same word used here in this way. So is that same word. You could translate John 3.16, God in this way loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So chapters 1 through 3 told us why we should stand firm. Chapter 4 tells us how you do it. You do it in this way. And verse 2 begins then to tell us how to stand firm. And it says, verse 2, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be part, to be of the same mind in the Lord. One indispensable issue in our perseverance is unity. You do it in this way. You're of the same mind. You're unified. So Christians are called to stand firm, to persevere in general. And chapters 1 through 3 have told us a lot about that. But now specifically, first in chapter 4, we're to stand firm, we're to persevere, I say in your outline... In unity. Christians are called to persevere in unity. And this unity, as I indicated in the introduction and I say in the outline, is often threatened. It's often threatened. Not only see that in our own experience, experience like I've outlined and I could go on about those anecdotes, sad anecdotes. But in the word of God, we see dissension and disunity arise. In Acts chapter 6, the Bible says that the very first church in all of history, the one that was established in Jerusalem just after the Lord Jesus ascended back to heaven, the Bible says that in that church, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews. 
a dispute arose. Paul and Barnabas had their own disagreement recorded in the Bible, which, if not handled properly, could have harmed the fledgling churches in the first century that looked to them for leadership. To the quarreling, fact-ridden Corinthian church, the Bible says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. The Apostle Peter said, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. This very book of Philippians hints at the possibility of disunity in the prior chapters. Chapter 1 and verse 27. Chapter 1 and verse 27. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm. In the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Chapter 2 and verse 2. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. In chapter 2 and verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. You see from those passages, you have the hints of dissension and dissension that could grow. So now here in chapter 4 and verse 2. Two women are mentioned. These are female names. Sorry, ladies. That's just the deal. And these two women apparently had an ongoing disagreement. And they're being appealed to to come to terms. These are two women in the church at Philippi about whom we know very little except that they were at odds with each other. While we know really nothing of them personally, we can say that their disagreement was a personal matter, a matter of opinion, not a doctrinal issue or an issue of right and wrong, truth and error. We know it's none of those things because if it had been, Paul would have had, he would have directly corrected it and taken sides in no uncertain terms. He does that throughout his letters in the New Testament. So whatever's going on between these two ladies is a matter of personal opinion. It's a matter of preference. We can also say that they were members of the church at Philippi. They were not outsiders who were causing trouble. And they were prominent women in the church. Evidently, given that they have this kind of publicity and for their issue to be of such importance to the whole church. In fact, they may well have been among the group of women that Paul came into contact with in Acts chapter 16 when he visited the city of Philippi. And the Bible tells us that he went to a river outside the city and he found some women praying there. And he gave them the gospel and one of those women became the first convert on the continent of Europe, Lydia, a businesswoman. But she was among these other women and in all likelihood these two women were there as well. Now, because this is a personal, not a doctrinal or moral matter, Paul's words then are even handed. He's taking no sides. He's appealing to both of them equally. So notice verse two says, I plead with you, Odia, and I plead with Syntyche. He's got plead with both. I'm pleading with both of you here. Now, this whole thing is strange to our eyes for a few reasons. 
if you're awake and you're thinking about it. Here are these two women called out. Their names are given. And while we know nothing about them personally, other than that they had a disagreement, remember that the people who received this letter knew who they were. Can you imagine being in church one Sunday in Philippi? And one of the pastors announces, we've gotten a letter from Paul. In those days, nobody had his own copy of the Bible. So you'd listen as it was read. So you sit there and you nod in agreement as chapters 1 through 3 are read. Now, of course, they had no chapters. They're just going through. And then you hear your name, Euodia. Whoa. Syntyche. Names mentioned of people who are having disunity in the church. This shows how seriously the Bible takes this matter of disunity. And our reaction shows how lightly we tend to take it. Or frankly, to take sin in general for that matter. The Bible takes these things extremely seriously. So much so that Paul calls these women out. Now he does so in a very loving manner. But he calls them out. To say this has got to be fixed. If you're somebody who is squeamish, as most American Christians I found are, about naming names, I don't think you should ever say anything. Look, you just got to read through the New Testament, okay? Now, I don't, I don't think anybody should be gratuitous in mentioning other people and names. And to my knowledge, we have never mentioned a name of a person publicly in this church ever. And unless there's a church discipline matter, which has only happened twice in the 15 years of our church, then I don't see that happening. But there are false teachers who are called out throughout the New Testament. Do you know that? And every now and then I do that, and every now and then people get squirmish about that. Pastor, I don't think you should say that. Look, I've got precedent, okay? And my job as a shepherd is to warn you about people. But here, these are, these are women in the church who have this disagreement, and Paul understands that that disagreement can lead to disunity in the church if they don't handle it. Takes it extremely seriously. We see how seriously the Bible takes it in other places. For example, Jesus' words in Matthew 5. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. So this issue of some breach between, interpersonal breach, is so serious, says Jesus... Leave the gift there. Stop worshiping. Leave church. And then he says, first go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Then come back. That's how serious it is. I will just say to you that a good way for you to and me to obey this is to mark uh, March the 19th on your calendar we will be having communion together in this hour for the entirety of the hour. That is the koinonia, the communion of the body. The partnership of the body. By March 19th, you get it straight. Whatever it is you've got going on with someone else in the body of Christ, you get it straight. Do it sooner than that. But certainly by that time, do not partake of the Lord's table with dissension between you and another brother or sister. And these things, these personal opinion kinds of issues, 
hurt feelings that cause these divisions among God's people are always due to, now hear this, to differing and inferior agendas. That is, the two people have differing, they they have a, a different agenda from the agenda of the gospel. Because if your agenda is the gospel, then everything else is subservient to that. Everything else can be subsumed under that. You're willing to go to someone for the sake of Christ and for the sake of his work to get it right so that we can move on in unity. But if you have your own agenda and you consider that agenda to be precious, when in fact it, like everything, is inferior to the gospel, then the disagreement, the dissension will remain. Now, these women were known. Their dispute was known. Thus, Paul could write about it. Often it's not the case that it's known, that somebody's ticked about something. Somebody's upset about a matter or at someone. So they talk, and they talk to you, and you listen, and then you wonder whether or not what they said is true. So now you've got that lodged in your brain. And two people talk to two people, and four people talk to four more, and eight more, but they're all just sort of whispering to each other. It's like, hear this, it's like termites eating at the structure of a building. And you don't know it's happening. It's just eating away. And then what happens is there's a catalytic event, and the thing crumbles quickly. And people stand back and go, what happened? How did that happen? I know of a church in Canada that I visited. I spoke there for five days about five years ago at a conference. I know the pastor. I met many of the people. When I was there, I enjoyed a great time with those folks. In the last year, that church has disintegrated. Disintegrated. It was a gospel beacon. It believed the truth. But termites were at work in that church. And something happened to bring all the grievances out, and the thing imploded. And people wonder what happened. Listen, here's what happened. For years, people were failing to take those commands in the Bible toward unity seriously. So it's okay if it's just you and me talking. It's just between us. And dissension spreads. Something happens and it falls apart. Some of you have had the painful experience of seeing that happen. It almost happened to us a couple of years ago. And God graciously spared our church. Now, that's all I have to say about that. I'm moving on. It's actually a testimony of gratitude and thanks to God that he spared us. We are no better than the other churches that have this happen and they imploded. And I'm telling you, friends, as your pastor, and I'm going to move on, the Bible warns about this. Do not be a termite eating away at the unity of God's church. And I don't know of any. 
We just try to kill termites before they come, okay? Christians are called to persevere in unity. A unity that is often threatened, but I say in your outline, a unity that can be maintained. These women are begged to, verse 2, be of the same mind in the Lord. Now note, it's not that one has to agree with the other. It's not that they have to agree with each other because this is not a matter of right and wrong. Some translations render it, live in harmony with each other. This is a matter of opinion that has escalated. Paul obviously knows about it, so it's become a matter of sinful talk now. So how do they agree? How do they live in harmony? When it says, I plead with each of them to be of the same mind in the Lord, very simply it's saying that they must develop Christ-like attitudes. Their agreement needs to be a state of mind. The same phrase is used in chapter 2 and verse 5, where it says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So we could put it this way. They must have their minds transformed by the word of God. They must begin to think biblically. This is at the heart of unity. There must be a biblical mindset within a church or unity can never be achieved. The prophet Amos asked the question, can two walk together except they be agreed? Very little will be accomplished for the Lord if there is not unity of mind and the key to unity is a transformed and biblical mindset. Now, there are always going to be differences in the church. There are differences in the people that God brings together in a local church like this. That's always going to be the case, but it's intended to be a part of the strength of the church. We could not function if we were all the same. There must be, and God gives us blessedly this diversity. But our different strengths and abilities and interests must all be shaped by the rich truths of God's word. And they must all be subordinated to the mission that God has given us to carry out to further the gospel together. So, friend, ask yourself, as I ask myself, are we led by truth or by our desires and individual agendas? If we're led by truth and the mission that Jesus has given us, then our church will continue to see unity and harmony. But if we're driven by personal desires, there will be discord and there will be divisions. These women, like some of us, may just have to agree to disagree on some matters of opinion. Because they and we agree on so much that is so important. If we agree on all of that that's so important, then let's subordinate these other lesser things and these inferior agendas. Now, who should initiate this? So that whatever rift has gone on between two within the church gets reconciled. Who should initiate it? Well, remember Matthew 5 that we quoted earlier. Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember, notice your brother or sister has something against you. So they perceive you've done something to them. Then leave your gift at the altar. And then he goes on, says, go. So in that passage, who goes? It's the person who either in reality or in perception is the offender. This is the offender going. But then Jesus says elsewhere in Matthew 18, same book. 
If your brother or sister sins against you, go. So you're on both sides. You're the offender or the offended. And in both cases, the instruction is the same. Go. So how would that happen? Well, what should happen, then if both parties are obeying the Lord, is they run into each other on the way. No matter which side of that you're on, you're going to reconcile. You're looking to reconcile, so you go. Unity can be maintained, and I say in your outline. This unity must be maintained. It can be. It must be. Notice, though, that the responsibility went even beyond just the two ladies. Verse 3, I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, if naming these women is not already politically incorrect enough, (laughs) Paul now says, let's get another person involved. Well, just, this is just violating American sensibilities all over the place, isn't it? One, you know, you can't mention people's names. I have a right to privacy in the Constitution. By the way, no, you don't. But that's another argument. We can agree to disagree on that. But I've got a right to privacy. And he goes and mentions my name and then says, get somebody else involved. Another of these phrases that people use without knowing that it's from the Bible is the question that you hear sometimes, am I my brother's keeper? Genesis chapter 4, Cain's question to God after he's murdered his brother, Abel. But the Bible's answer to that, am I my brother or sister's keeper, is a resounding yes. That someone else would respond to a situation and have the care and the courage to get involved is counter to all the assumptions that we make about our relationships. We see ourselves as independent islands only connected to the mainland when we need something. That great theologian Billy Joel spoke for most Americans and many Christians when he said, I don't need you to worry for me because I'm all right. I don't need you to tell me it's time to come home. I don't care what you say anymore. This is my life. Go ahead with your own life. Leave me alone. Contrary, though, to our sinful independence and our American individualism. The Bible teaches, friends, that we are not islands, but we are parts of a unified body. First Corinthians chapter 12, the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, They form one body. Now, we don't know who this person is that Paul is calling upon to help, this true companion. But it may well be that the words true companion are a proper name. They are a single word in Greek, and it could be someone's name. But in any case, it's in all likelihood an elder at the church who was particularly aware and in a position to intervene. It's someone in the church at Philippi who's being asked to act as a peacemaker in this situation. This is not the only place where that is commended. Galatians chapter 6, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should seek to restore him gently. James chapter 5, that we'll 
Put on the screen in a moment. In a moment. All right, it's up there. Good work. But you've heard the phrase many times, love covers a multitude of sins. Well, that phrase is used in a few places in the Bible. But this act of covering a multitude of sins, this love that does that is a love that takes action. And James chapter 5 tells us that because it uses that phrase, covering a multitude of sins, but it doesn't use the word love. Instead, it tells you what love does to cover those sins. So James chapter 5 now. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will cover over a multitude of sins. Love covers over a multitude of sins, but how does love look? Love looks like caring enough to get involved. To help someone when they're going down an erroneous path. Now, lest we think that these two women were just troublemaking busybodies. Verse 3 tells us that these ladies were real servants of the Lord. It says, help these women since they've contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. One commentator says, this points up the fact that sometimes the best people, good people, faithful people, can become agents of the enemy in inducing conflict. We have to guard against that. The enemy would twist and pervert any of us who believes he has some good noble cause to become the agent of discord if we're not sensitive. And verse 3 says, These women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So he says, These dear women shared my struggle together with Clement whom the implied thought is, you Philippians know and love, and the rest of all my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. In other words, all of these people, including these two women, they're on the team, they're believers, they're faithful servants, they're workers. They're not the only ones, but their names are in the book of life. That's the implication here. Their names are in the book of life. They are Christian people, genuinely so. So John MacArthur says of this, And so you just get the feeling of the richness of fellowship here. Here are all these names in the book of life. And here's Clement and the true companion and the Philippian church and these two dear women. And Paul says, we've all been working together. We've all been struggling. We've all been striving. We've all been tried so that we can be used by God to build the church. And now all of a sudden, these two women have just gotten into discord that threatens the stability of the whole thing. Stand firm in one spirit is what he's saying, just as he did back in chapter 1 and verse 27. Paul loves them all. God loves them all. They ought to love each other. There's got to be harmony. There needs to be a warm, genuine, loving unity. And that creates an environment of stability to stand firm. When you fracture that, the church becomes unstable. When there's discord in a church, people get unstable. They start falling and tumbling and toppling all over and everywhere. Attitudes become bad, negative spirits, bitterness, lack of forgiveness grows, hostility comes into play. There's a tremendous vulnerability personally and individually when there's collective discord. So to be spiritually stable means that I must pursue peace, be a peacemaker. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. I want to pursue loving harmony in the church. I want to be a true companion in the gospel. I want to be somebody who helps people resolve their conflict because that's how you create a spiritually stable environment. 
And so if you want to sum it up in one word, it is indeed the word love. Be a lover of God and then in turn be a lover of God's people. We are to be the agents of love, to build that stabilizing bond of love in the church. You want to be spiritually stable? Then pursue love in all your relationships. Pursue peace and harmony and unity. So your take-home truth then is this. Christians are responsible to pursue unity in God's church. Let's bow before the Lord. Our Father, we're thankful to you for meeting with us and allowing us to meet together. We thank you, Lord, for instructing us in your word. Lord, not just in transcendent ways, not in ways that are just otherworldly, but in ways that are thisworldly, in ways that call us to the practice of the Christian life in the here and now. Thank you, Lord, for showing us the lives of others and at times naming them. Real people, really affected, really faithful, but also really vulnerable, like we, to their own sin nature. So thank you for showing us that, Lord. Thank you for instructing us then on what we need to do. Help us then as your people in this place, Lord, to heed what you say. Help us, Lord, not to be the termites of discord. Help us to be the agents of peace among your people so that your work continues to move forward here, that people do look at this place and this gathering and this group of Christians and they say, I know they are followers of Jesus because they love one another. That's what you said should be our distinguishing mark. May it be true of us here. And may you receive the praise and glory because of it. In Jesus' name, amen.